So I'm Dan Hawkins with NAC, and we're here with the latest interview uh, in our Health Center History Project, and this is Ms. Teresita Batayola, who is the CEO of International Community Health Services, yes. ICHS in Seattle. Earlier today, we introduced, we interviewed Dr. Grace Wong. Wonderful. Uh, and She's been with several CHCs, so just it's a, great. Just an hour ago or two hours ago, we interviewed, interviewed Tom Trumpeter. And of yes. course, you were, I said, you were singing his praises. He was singing your praises <laughs> as we talked about uh, yeah. the work in the Seattle area yeah. and everything. So yeah. you have many friends. Oh, thank you. In high places. Oh, thank you. <laughs> we need all the friends we can get. There you go. Yeah. So but we're here today to talk about your experience yeah. with community health centers. So tell us, what is it in your childhood, your upbringing, et cetera, that opened you to a career in community health? Well, Dan, I come from an immigrant family. Mm -hmm. We immigrated back in 1969. And at that time, uh, there was a lot of urban blight in the United States, a lot of unrest, mm -hmm. uh, civil rights demonstrations. And as a newly arrived immigrant kid, it was very, very confusing. Uh, but one of the things that my parents got me to do to get me out of my funk, if you will, uh, was basically uh, pressure me to volunteer in Chinatown. Uh, back then it was just called Chinatown, and now it's called Chinatown International District. Um, they are very religious people, and they have a good friend and this young nun who was an early ARNP uh, named Sister Heidi Perenio. And she was doing some work in Chinatown with elderly Filipino and Chinese men who did not have families, who had come here in the United States in the early 1900s, 1920s, did backbreaking work, mm -hmm. in, you know, railroads, farms, and in Seattle's case, in the salmon canneries of Alaska. Wow. And so they were alone. There were anti-miscegenation laws. They could not marry here. For various reasons, they weren't able to bring their wives or families over, so uh, they were sick. They were in single-room occupancy hotels that were run down. Wow. And uh, so the community found out that uh, not only they were sick, but they had experienced a couple of deaths that took a few days to discover. So there was this big push to have health services for these elderly men. And Sister Heidi Perenio, being an ARMP also, uh, was doing work with them and decided that we needed a nursing demonstration project to see if nursing could address the needs uh -huh. of these men. She needed some volunteers to help interview, so I was one of those drafted, if you will, <laughs> pushed <laughs> to do it. Uh, it was a bit uncomfortable for me as a young person to interview elderly men I did not know and who were more interested in me because they felt like I was a long-lost niece or daughter. Yeah. Um, so it was always a struggle to interview them because they kept turning the tables on me. <laughs> but, you know, that early experience, uh, so early in our immigration experience where we were still struggling, 
really opened my eyes to the fact that there are people who are worse off than we were. Mm-hmm. That as hard as it was for us, at least we had each other, and that there were people out there who had no other resources, no other people to turn to. Uh, so that was my early exposure to mm-hmm. the health center movement. Of course, I did not know it was a movement at that time. Uh, it was just something that came out of need and something that the community demanded uh, and pushed uh, King County local government to fund the first storefront clinic. So that's how I began my interest wow. in health centers. But it was very Seattle-focused, very local community-focused. wasn't necessarily seen or understood as a nationwide movement at all. At yes, that point. yes. I, I think you're very right uh, because there were other health clinics that I got exposed to along the way. Uh, Country Doctor was one of them. They had taken over a local fire station and made a little storefront clinic out of that one mm-hmm. once the uh, fire department moved out. Uh, I myself, uh, when I was struggling, uh, when I was in college, ended up going to the women's health clinic in the Wallingford area of Seattle. Mm -hmm. So again, there were all these little clinics that had uh, basically risen up to meet whatever need was in that local community. Um, And that motivated you to do what? Uh, Well, I will say that it took a long time before I really circled back to the health center movement. Uh Uh, But what it sparked in me was volunteerism, getting engaged in the community. So um, through college, I did volunteer work. I got engaged with the Asian Pacific Women's Caucus. Uh, And then post-college, when I was working on my career, it wasn't in the health center movement. Uh, Like a lot of young people, we try out different things for a while. I worked for a little nonprofit, then I worked for uh, federal government, I worked for state government, I worked for city government. But during all those times, I always touched base and I always volunteered in the community, uh, such that uh, during the 80s, I was actually uh, on the board of a local community development organization, which happened to have developed the site that our home clinic is at right now. And at that time, it became award-winning nationally because it was among the first that had a multi-generational, multi-service, one-stop shop so that it had our clinic, it had an assisted living, it had a Head Start program, it had a social services program. And then a few years later, they built another complex across the street that had a library, community center, and affordable housing for families. Uh, with units that had three bedrooms because many families in our communities were really multiple children. Not (laughs) only that, but multi-generational. Oh, sure. Not unusual for grandma to be part of the family living together. Interesting. So it was family-focused. Yes. um, Services and care. Yes. In that. Yeah. So for us, even though International Community Health Services started serving older, single men, we quickly expanded to seeing families, seeing all ages, uh, because in the 70s, Vietnam War was raging, and then Vietnam fell, and city of Seattle and so many areas around the country experienced this huge surge of refugees 
Vietnamese at first and then other Southeast Asian groups. So when they came to our region, no one was around to serve them. And uh, even though our small board, small organization was struggling to serve its primary clients or patients at that time, uh, they really pushed themselves to, to serve families, to serve people from other cultures. And I like to repeat that story because it really tells us who we are today. Uh, today we serve over 50 languages a year. Wow. Yes. And it's not just Asian Pacific Islander languages. We're serving East African, Eastern European, and of course Spanish. Uh, so wow. we've become this very Truly robustly cultural Yes, yeah, and reflecting, reflecting our name, international <clears throat> community, yeah. Yeah. Boy, that's an amazing story. And your involvement with them beyond volunteering, when did that become more serious and permanent? In 2004, uh, the organization realized it needed to do strategic planning. Um, it had two sites. Our state had a basic health plan that was available to people. It was subsidized, uh, available to folks who did not qualify for Medicaid, but still too poor to buy insurance mm -hmm. or whose employers didn't provide insurance. And so our health center grew. But as it grew, it grew organically, and the board realized well, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know uh, where we're going. We need to do a strategic plan. If you don't know uh, where you're going, you won't know when you get there. <laughs> <laughs> or we just keep going and going, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and it so happens that strategic planning is one of my capacities. And uh, so a friend of mine asked me, you know, if I would help out. Uh, and... Um, and she had a little consulting group, so I said, sure, you know, I like ICHS. Uh, and um, I was surprised how fast they had grown. And in their growth, though, uh, they had not done any community needs assessment uh, in about 10 years, had not done any kind of organizational capacity analysis. And so I told them, do those first before mm -hmm. uh, strategic planning. A few months after that, they called and they said, uh, we still haven't done what you asked us to do, but we really need your help. Uh, so I came on board uh, for a six-month commitment to help them uh, launch their electronic health records. So this was 2005. Uh, to, you know, we were among the first. We were part of the you know, early adapters. And also to oversee the... Uh, construction of their second clinic. They had a small second clinic that was displaced by the light rail, and so they needed to move and construct a bigger uh, second site. So I did that, but in the course of this interim commitment, if you will, the executive director left. Uh, she told the board that she felt really burnt out, that she wanted to do other things, uh, so I was appointed interim uh, and became the new uh, executive director was my title at that time. Uh -huh. I made a two-year commitment, and every <laughs> here, we are, here we are, 15 years later, <laughs> the two years is... Still plugging along. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's so similar to so many stories yeah. uh, that I've heard. I myself, when I went to South Texas, 
um, in the VISTA program in the late 60s, went for one year and stayed for 10. Yeah. And in that time, was selected by the community to run a health center. I did that and and only left that when I left to go to Washington, D.C. to work at HHS. Yeah. Yeah. So so many of us start with a short-term commitment yeah. that ends up being a lifelong commitment yes. uh, yeah. to the people we care about and the services yeah. that we care about as well. Yeah, I think that's so true. But I also know people who get so hooked on the mission that even if they weren't working for us, they're there as volunteers or they come back as locums or, you know, they just help fill out the need uh, to serve mm-hmm. uh, because the mission has really basically taken their heart. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. So when you got to, uh, first of all, your background was in planning and development, huh? Yes. That was your, your interest. Um, when you got to, when you were selected as the CEO of, of ICHS, what did you find when you really dug in were the greatest needs that ICHS had? So like many organizations, there are these different stages, right? So we had that real feisty upstart, we're here, whatever you say, we're going to stick to it and we're going to serve, right? Mm -hmm. And we grew. And uh, so when I came in, the organizations had grown uh, to two sides instead of one and both sides were of reasonable size. Uh, But what it really needed, uh, and I believe that, you know, there's a lot of synergy in my coming there, was what I would call a professionalization of the organization. Mm-hmm. So at that time, uh, they didn't even have FTCA coverage, you know, so wow. they, they were missing out on this amazing resource uh-huh. that would help extend our financial ability to serve. Uh, and uh, they didn't have a lot of policies and procedures, which is why they didn't have FTCA. Uh, and um, policies and procedures they needed included uh, HR policies and procedures. They didn't have a compensation schedule. Uh, so the planning and infrastructure experience I had really helped build that up. Uh, and I was very fortunate that um, there were already some people in the organization who were interested in growing uh, and who formed basically the response team, if you will, into building the infrastructure. Uh And uh, so that was the first stage uh, in my tenure there. Then when my two years was going to be up, unfortunately, the recession hit. Oh. Yeah. So uh, then it was an issue of how do we hold fast while we continue to serve? How do we hold fast and not diminish anything, right? hold fast, and yet be prepared for the next cycle. So the last part, being prepared for the next cycle, spoke to planning. And our board and our top leadership engaged in a a very strong strategic planning process, which really helped lay out the plan for where we are today. Uh, Today we have 11 sites. Uh, We're not just in Seattle, we're in King County. So basically, we followed closely where our population had dispersed 
real estate prices uh, because they, they've been increasing so rapidly in the city mm -hmm. of Seattle push pushed out a whole lot of people. And so instead of expecting our patient populations to come to Seattle to drive in to be served, we started to be available to them. Uh, we also got into the schools. Uh, we have a mobile dental clinic, uh, which I understand wow. is more common in rural settings. Uh, but this mobile dental serves 13 schools. And when school is on vacation uh, or closed, uh, then we serve nonprofits. We bring services to people. So now we're more about making sure that we're located where people need us. Uh-huh. Yeah. Were you able to benefit from the uh, ARA stimulus funding? Yes. Uh, so ARA came at a very good time uh, because... Uh, during the recession, there were nonprofits that basically left and moved. And so mm -hmm. we were able to take advantage of space in our building to expand and grow medical, dental. Uh, and uh -huh. that's what we use the ARA funding for. We modernized all of our facilities. Uh, and when the Affordable Care Act passed, were you also able to benefit from... Uh some of the capital funding available there uh, as well? No. <laughs> I am sad to say that the site control issue was never, not really in our favor in terms of uh, uh -huh. capital funding under ACA, uh, just because real estate prices were too high in the city of Seattle. Gotcha. You know, our brother and sister clinics in other areas, especially in rural areas, uh, did very well in Washington yeah. State. But... Uh, ACA was extremely helpful to us because in our state, Medicaid got expanded to 138% of federal poverty level, and yep. then we established our own state exchange. So our health center went from over 30% uninsured to a low of below 8%. Wow. Yeah, but under the current administration, unfortunately, it's been rising. They've been uh, rolling it back, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a shame. Yeah. Uh, but Medicaid, at least the Medicaid expansion, has yes. held, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And we can only hope that the basic health plan will get reinvigorated and uh, give you the resources that you need. Yeah, we hope so, too. Our state, uh, this last legislative session, passed a plan called Cascade Care, but it will take until 2021 to uh, implement it. And it's trying to bring back some subsidized uh, coverage for populations. So it's holding on, fingernails time? Holding on. Uh, but I tell you, Dan, the biggest threat to us right now is what's happening uh, with all the anti-immigrant efforts. Sure. Uh, because our patient population is dominantly uh, immigrants. Um, about half of our patients need interpretation. You know, it's not a sure. opting to or preferring to, it's needing interpretation. Uh, while we don't ask their immigration status, uh, we do know that they need those services. So they're getting affected by all the threatening actions that are anti-immigrant. And I was going to say this latest uh, <clears throat> attack, the public charge thing, I would assume we are hearing from all across the country that immigrant families who are legally entitled yes. to coverage under Medicaid are pulling back. 
dropping out of coverage under Medicaid, even WIC, even though it's not yes. um, affected, it's not a target under the public charge thing. Uh, folks are pulling back, and even some are pulling back from going to get care at a health center, even though that would not be affected. Yes. Yeah. Are you finding those yeah. phenomena to be occurring in, yeah. in your you, community? You've exactly said our experience. Uh, even when people are legally entitled to those services, they don't come. Uh, just yeah. because of the atmosphere that we're facing. Also, also uh, realistically, many families have uh, mixed status families. Right. So even if they're legally qualified to do that, um, they don't want to negatively affect someone else accidentally. Other family members. Right, who... exactly. <clears throat> and then uh, because the draft included, included kids, uh, the final excluded kids, yeah. but the misinformation is still out there. So uh, we have to do a lot in terms of educating people and making sure that they come in uh, and make sure their kids have services, make sure that you know, pregnant women have services, all of those exclusions come in. And we're encouraging people, uh, if uh, you know, they haven't taken advantage of their benefits, do so before October 15 if you're uncertain, sure. and then check with some legal sources. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think <clears throat> all health centers, everyone, has a responsibility, a massive responsibility, to do the best information, education, uh, and advocacy effort that we can yes. do yeah. to ensure that people understand the rules, fight to push back on the rules. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. I noticed that uh, the West Coast, California and Washington and Oregon, have been leading the charge in filing lawsuits against yes. the proposed changes. Yeah which I think is so admirable. Yeah, the Washington State Attorney General is co-lead uh, on the lawsuit. Yeah. And that is so important. Uh, you know, you mentioned it earlier. The, these are people who are legally entitled yeah. to these services, and yet out of fear, out of intimidation, you know, they're staying away. Yeah. Yeah. It is terrible. Um, but that's where we have to stand up as part of the bulwark against this, yeah. you know, heinous yeah. uh, policy yeah. that but, the current administration, yeah. Yes, but isn't that the DNA of health centers? It is. I, I mean, very few things are given to us, no matter how many people we serve. We, we have to stand up all the time, show up all the time for the right people, the right causes, and continue to serve. That's what we're about. Yeah. How's the attitude among your staff? Are they feisty and feeling ready to fight? Well, I should hope I'm infectious <laughs> in terms of fightiness. Um, I get emails uh, from my staff, and they said they tell me how angry and frustrated they are. I said, and I usually respond uh, to them, and I do try to respond every time I get an email. I said, "Okay, be angry, be frustrated, but don't stay there. Act." There you go. That's what I do. Yeah, no. you can't tear your hair out and do nothing. Yes, we have to turn our anger and frustration into action. So, all this current mess notwithstanding, um, from your experience, 
what's your perspective on the future for health centers? Is it generally bright and positive? The future for health centers, I think, is bright and positive because of several things. One, we're pretty agile. Every mm -hmm. single year that I have been at ICHS has been different, different in terms of regulations, availability, funding. It's fun when we have, you know, more, right? Uh -huh. um, especially when the ACA passed, and not so fun uh, now when the ACA is under attack. Yeah. However, even when it's under attack, we've had additional funding to address the opioid crisis, to address mental health mm -hmm. crisis. So we're really, whether or not people say that we are their priority, we become their go-to right, in terms of addressing the problems. Mm -hmm. So as long as we can stay agile, keep our eyes on the prize, and to me that means owning our mission, keeping our vision, and making sure that we're serving our patients, their families, and communities, I think we'll be just fine. And, you know, you asked about feistiness, we have to stay feisty at all times. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Oh, Teresita, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank you, Dan. <clears throat> I'm glad we met up. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we were able to work it out. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> and thus ends the Northwest U.S. portion of our Health Center History interviews. <laughs> we have had <clears throat> a great day in the Northwest here with these interviews. And after, you know, after interviewing Dr. Wong, Tom and yourself, I feel even more animated and, and uh, certain that we've got a bright future. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. All right. <laughs>